Next up on the Mutual Audio Network, fiction from our future. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance recommended. You're listening to an Eric Busby production. Personal log of Susan Lockhart. I mean, acting First Officer Susan Lockhart. 10th of March, 2089. Today is my 29th birthday, and I no longer remember what my parents' faces look like. The last time I ever saw them was just after my fourth birthday, the day of the aptitude test. A test all children the world over take just after their fourth birthday. A test to determine if you have what the great corporations of Earth want in their operatives. I never knew what the result of my test was, only that after it was done, I was whisked away from the testing facilities and placed in the institution where I was raised. I was scared at first, what child taken from their parents wouldn't be. But in time... That fear gave way to training, new directives, giving everything I had to the corporations, dedication, loyalty, my life, my death. The great corporations are my parents now. I lived only to serve them. There are only two ruling factions in the world of the late 21st century, the various world governments and the corporations. The governments wage futile wars against one another for dominance of the planet's dwindling resources. The corporations rebuild everything the governments destroy. Something of a symbiotic relationship, each needing the other to exist. If one fell, the other would fall along with it shortly after. Through most of my 27 years of life, I was the company's willing servant, moving my way up the ranks until I achieved a lofty position, which in turn made me a very powerful person in my own right. All of that changed on a day in April, when a construction was found deep in the asteroid belt, wandering not far from the dwarf planet Ceres. Ceres had been declared off-limits by the unified British Empire in the mid-21st century, The reasons for this were never quite clear, but no one was allowed on Ceres. But the lure of great profits often makes any risk acceptable, which is why a mining ship went where it should never have gone and made a discovery that would change the course of my life. Eric Busby presents Far Horizons Season 2, Episode 1 Where I Can Never Be Written by Eric Busby
Donna, how close are they? Very. They should be surfacing any moment. All right, everyone. You know what we have to do. Headshots are pointless, so aim for their legs. They'll slow down so we can put them away for good without anyone getting hurt. Sam, can I just point out one more time that I am not a soldier? In case it escaped your notice, neither am I. Did you have something better to do? No, it's... Look, I'm a tug pilot. I've never handled a gun before. Point the barrel, hold your breath, squeeze the trigger. It's not hard. That's not the point. There are people trained for this sort of thing. There were. Sergeant Collins and a lot of his people died when they tried to explore this world. You, I, and the rest of the crew have to step up and help now. I understand that. It's just... Well, I'm a little out of my element here. Donna, we're lost in space, stuck on a backwater world, and under constant attack by undead monsters. We're all out of element. Okay, boys and girls, here we go. Open fire! Okay, they're down. Now light them up. That takes care of this wave. Why don't we just light them on fire as soon as they come out of the surf? Because flamethrowers have no stopping power. Not with zombies. They're still going to attack us, but... But now they're on fire. But once they're down, we can reduce them to ash. Exactly. Let me guess. There's more coming. Yes. Large number heading this way. How long have we got? Two hours or so. Maybe less. Okay, happy campers. More uninvited guests are on their way, so make sure your guns are fully loaded and the flamethrowers are fueled. I think it's going to be a long day. The company kept the discovery secret. It did not take long to realize that the technology and construction was far in advance of anything we had on Earth. It was extraterrestrial. The company devised a plan, a simple one really, exploit all the advances we could gain from the construction. But keeping something like this a secret proved impossible in the long run. It was inevitable that industrial spies would sell the information, or whistleblowers would clue in the Earth's governments of its existence. Long story short, the unified British Empire found out about the construct. They lowered the boom. Trials were held, heads rolled, literally. But in the end, a deal was struck. We would be allowed to continue its investigation of the construct, but under a military detachment all information shared. 
That is how I became part of all of this. I was assigned as the company's representative, but I had to answer to one Nicholas Lancer, captain of the unified British Army and head of this operation. Spent weeks studying its makeup since Dr. Stark was killed. I've run every kind of test I can, Captain Lancer, from pectoral analysis to its cellular compilation. Sounds fun. So what have you found out? It's a head, amphibian in nature, similar to organisms of the Anera order on Earth. That's it. That's all you have to show for how many weeks? It clearly shares common traits with frogs, Commander Lockhart. Of course, our specimen is much more... Large? I was going to say sophisticated. As fascinating as this is, I need to know what woke up this one and the other one on its ship. When we came across the saber, all hands on board were dead and had been for some time. Then they got up and slaughtered the boarding team. Well, technically speaking, they didn't wake up. When they started attacking us, they were still quite dead at the time. You know, being zombies and all that. I'd like to know how something like that is even possible. I wish I could tell you. Shortly after we arrived on this world, whatever had been animating the head stopped. It just became unanimated again. The best I can do is speculate. I'll take anything at this moment, Doctor. To hazard a guess, I'd say there's some kind of mysterious force out in space. A sort of entity, if you will, that's capable of animating dead bodies and using them for its own nefarious purposes. (laughs) Gee, that's not creepy at all. Can it do this with every dead body, or just the ones it kills? Again, Commander, I haven't a clue. Well, keep at it. If you should learn anything... You'll be the first I tell, unless it's trying to eat me. In which case, I'm calling security. Very good. With me, Commander. Well, that was a complete waste of my time. We're doing the best we can with what resources we have available to us on the bell. A lot of this is still new and we're learning as we go. I know that, Captain. But at times it feels like we're in the deep end of a pool, barely keeping our heads above water. In a lot of ways we are, number one. But as long as we keep our heads above water, there is a chance we'll find our way out of this. Number one? What's a number one? The executive officer of a ship is often called number one by the ship's captain. It's a naval tradition. It goes back centuries. It's either that or XO. I'm not sure I care much for either one, let alone being the Art Bell's executive officer. I know. You're a businesswoman. But until we get back to Earth... I know. I'm your first officer. And I guess a number one. Speaking of Earth, when are we going to leave this planet? Cat has most of the repairs finished. She's just getting the main drive realigned. Hard to believe she's our chief engineer now. Max was a damn fine engineer. At least he was before one of those crab zombies got him. Cat's doing a fine job, number one. When we arrived on this world, the bell was on his last legs. She's gotten him almost as good as new. Speaking of which, I read the report she submitted on the weapons installation. You know she's tied them directly into the main power core. 
Just the energy cannon. The rail guns have their own power supply. Yes, but the cannon is a huge power drain. It takes the core 30 minutes to recharge. After one or two shots, the ship's dead in the water. Then, if we have to use the cannon, we'll have to make those shots count. After our run-in with the saber, I don't want to get caught with our pants down again. We need to be able to defend ourselves on our way back to Earth. Flight deck to Captain Lancer. This is Lancer. Go ahead, Artemis. Please report to the flight deck at once, sir. We may have a problem. Very well. We're on our way. Duty calls, number one. After a dreadful day of having to deal with Captain Lancer, I had come to truly loathe the man. He represented everything I hate about the military. Brash, pig-headed, a pawn of the government with little to no imagination. I was about to turn in. Then the alarm sounded, and my whole evening, my whole life, changed. I came out of my room to find Professor Baker and his stooge, Mr. Gareth, already in the hallway, apparently debating something. All I really heard was, that wasn't supposed to happen. I just wanted the alarms to stop so I could get some sleep. The construct's main power suddenly and unexpectedly came on. Captain Lancer didn't take any chances. He ordered the art bell away from the construct. Only thing was, something on the construct was holding the bell fast in place. The captain ordered the ship's engine to full power, but still the bell didn't so much as budge an inch. All the while the power level on the construct kept rising. I was worried it was about to explode. Could the bell survive something like that? Are we a moment away from death? Then came a brilliant white flash, engulfing everything in blinding whiteness. A moment later, it faded, as if it never happened. I remember the ship's pilot announcing we were finally breaking from the construct. Relief. But that would prove short-lived. When we looked out the Art Bell's viewing ports, there were no longer any asteroids outside. And in their place two sons. To quote the ship's pilot, we weren't in Kansas anymore. Just a bit more. Yes, yes, we did it, Gareth. Now that we have my I mean, our personal connection to the warp stations running with the cloaking field. We can continue our experiments, and no one on the ship will be aware of it. Uh, like the one that caused us to get lost in space in the first place? Oh, we have learned a great deal since then, my friend. Professor Baker, I've been thinking... That's not your strong suit, Gareth. (sighs) Spit it out, man. What's on your mind? I've been thinking... no... No, I've been dwelling on the original incident. How we caused everything that's happened. Yes, what about it? Well, it's just... Well, maybe we should tell them. Tell them? Yes, the captain and the commander. How it was our experiment that caused us to jump in the first place. My dear Gareth, have you gone completely insane? 
Professor? Do you have any idea what the captain would do to us if he ever learned the truth? Well, do you? Well, he'd probably be upset, but he's a rational... Upset? Upset? Gareth, you simpleton. He'd toss us into an airlock and space us. Do you have any idea how painful it is to die in the vacuum of space? Do you? I've... Well, I've read reports. You basically die of asphyxiation due to lack of atmosphere. (laughs) Oh, my dear Gareth. Yes. Yes, you do die of asphyxiation. But that at the end, when you're first exposed to the vacuum of space, the breath in your lungs is torn right out from you. Nature abhors a vacuum, after all. Then, if you're somehow unlucky enough to survive your lungs bursting, what's left of your lungs starts burning with every inhale. But there's no air. Nothing. Just endless void. You'd feel your body freeze. You'd see your arms and legs turn to brittle ice and snap off. You live just long enough to experience all of that before dying of asphyxiation. To say the least, it's unpleasant. Is that what you want, Gareth? To die in agony? No, no, not at all. It's just... (sighs) Professor, we have to work with these people if we're ever going to get home. I just thought, you know, if we let them know about what we're working on... Believe it or not, that is what I'm doing. Finding a way back home. To Earth. If I'm dead, the chances the Outbell will ever see home again greatly diminish. They need us more than they'll ever know, Gareth. Without us, they would have died months ago. Gareth, even I make the odd mistake here and there. And yes, it was a mistake that got us into our current situation. But I, we have learned so much since then. Everything we've learned is aiding us to get home. I think I understand, Professor. Very good, my friend. So focus on the tasks at hand. In time you will see, you and I will be the reason this ship and its crew return home. Not Captain Lancer or his team, but us, Gareth. What we learn in the name of science while we are out here amongst the stars. You're quite right, Professor. I'm sorry to have ever doubted you. No need for apologies, my friend. Now then, I need some K9 circuit boards. I think that tech fellow, what's his name, Todd something? Well, he should have something. Do be a good chap and pick some up for me. Right away, Professor. for Gareth to generate a conscience. Let's get a handle on that. Let's fall victim to an accident. Hmm, made in the name of science. Not to mention the pain in the ass it would be to a trainer replacement. When the alien construct had first been discovered, its true purpose was hotly debated a base of operations, an observation post to study humanity on Earth. There had been a large dish-like object built into its side. This led to another theory. Perhaps the construct was a means for star systems to communicate with one another. Truth of the matter was, it was a gateway allowing ships from one star system to be instantly warped to another. We soon found millions of stations like this one scattered about the galaxy. But there was a problem. An event, hundreds of thousands of years ago, had affected the whole galaxy. In that time, 
the control system for these warp stations had degraded. We could program that warp station to send us back to Earth, but the chances of us reaching Earth were very slim. And so we set forth on a journey to reach home. Along the way, we hoped we might find other beings, or perhaps their records, something that could help us. But worlds after world we encountered no longer supported life, visited by nuclear death. Indeed, this far into the galaxy, we have yet to encounter another living soul. The dead, on the other hand. Okay, someone bring me up to speed. Okay, Art. Show it to him. What am I looking at? The ship's long-distance radar. Once I got the computers back online, we started tracking the various swarms that are coming at us. Thanks to Todd, the computers are plotting where and when they turn up. It's been a few dozen at a time, but now... Now we're about to be hit by a swarm of over 50,000 zombies. 50,000? It's my guess that the entire dead population of this planet has been amassing for weeks, and now coming for us. We don't have enough people or firepower to stop that many, Captain. What if we were to use those... the something guns? You mean the rail guns? Yes. What if we used those on them? It might slow them down some, but that's like trying to stop a swarm of ants with a handgun. There are too many of them over too wide an area. How long do we have before the first swarm hits? Just under two hours. Sam, recall everybody and then seal the ship. Art, Todd, start pre-flight check. We're leaving as soon as possible. I'm on it. Understood. Cat, how long would it take to fire up the engine core? Boss, with all due respect, it has taken us weeks to get the bell back together. And Todd has only just hooked up the engineering computer to the power core. Meaning what? Susan, we need that computer for a number of diagnostic checks to make sure everything is in alignment, you know? Bottom line it for me, Cat. How long do you need to get the core up? (sighs) The better part of a day. A day? We don't even have two hours, and you need a day to get out of here. Why the hell didn't you just leave it running when we got here? Because it would have killed us. Without the main computer, there's nothing monitoring the fuel flow rate. If it's off by even 1%, the core goes super critical and won't stop. Shutting the core down was the first thing we did as soon as we landed. But the computers are back up and running. Surely there's some way we can fire up quickly. Boss, this isn't like starting a car. This is a nuclear reactor. It takes time to get it up and running. It's a real balancing act. If you rush it and make a mistake... We turn into an atomic bomb. Exactly. I'm sorry, but there's no way to do this fast. Captain, I have an update on the swarm. There are now over 80,000 coming at us. They're speeding up. The first wave should be here in 50 minutes. I'm not liking our situation, Captain. Neither am I, number one. Neither am I. You've been listening to Far Horizons, Season 2, Episode 1, Where I Can Never Be. Written by Eric Busby. Featured in the cast were 
David Alt as Nicholas Lancer, Julia Eve as Susan Lockhart, John Specht as Artemis Kane, Jason Harder as Todd Eccleston, Zach Ricks as Sam Reed, Natalie Motti as Donna Briggs, Ellie Hirschman as Joshua Baker, Michael Hudson as Gareth Shaw, Kevin Tremblay as Dr. Sherman Tucker, and Meg Sutton as Engineer Cat. The script editor was Joe Medina. Far Horizon theme by Kai Hartwig. This is Mark Brzee. You've been listening to an Eric Busby production. Imagine the world around you is nothing but an illusion. Creatures of legend wage endless wars between shadow and light, but you never see it. Even now, dark forces threaten reality as we know it, but most people never know they exist. This is the world I walk in. I am called Byron, and these are my chronicles. The Byron Chronicles, available at ericbosbypresents.com, iTunes, Stitcher, and everywhere else podcasts are available. Mr. Hayes' office, how may I help you? Andrea, it's Marilyn over at Kennedy Parker Construction. Hello, Marilyn. Would you like me to connect Mr. Parker to Mr. A fish surrounded by sharks. A secretary cursed by desire and ambition. Introducing The Diarist by Donna Barrow-Green. The Diarist, an addictive psychological thriller, satirical, suspenseful, and full of twists. Available on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Yes. I'm sorry if I've hurt your feelings. Or if something I've said has led you to believe I think you're incompetent. It's just been so long since you've given me any encouragements or compliments on my... Andrea. I do notice you. I like that blouse on you very much. You look very pretty just as you are right now. Oh, well, I... It's very pretty on you. Thank you. What sort of fabric is it? It's silk. It's lovely. You have excellent taste in clothes. I notice. Would you mind removing your cardigan? My sweater? Yes, so I can see the blouse in its entirety. Why? I like it very much. You see, I do notice you. You know that, don't you? I don't have to tell you I notice these things. You know when I like something, don't you? I don't know. I repeated his words in my mind. I notice you. That was it, wasn't it? I wanted someone to notice me. Not Andrea the daughter, the wife, the secretary. Not even Andrea the artist or ad girl. I wanted someone, anyone, to see me. More than anything, it was Richard. Please don't think unkind of me, dear reader. Creepy 
prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster, Monster Kid, Kid Radio. Radio. Here your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster, Monster Kid, Kid Radio. Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters. Modern Talk. And the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster, Monster Kid Radio. Bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the Weird Darkness. I'm Darren Marlar, the creator and host of Weird Darkness, bringing you true stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. New episodes seven days a week. Get the podcast at WeirdDarkness.com or search for Weird Darkness in your favorite podcast app. And now, Mutual of Ohm, providing spiritual insurance for your past, your present, and your future since 500 BC, proudly presents Wrinkly's Believe It or Forget About It bringing you strange but true tales and oddities from all over this wide world. And here is your host, Mr. Robert Wrinkley. Hello, I'm Robert Wrinkley. And lastly, here is the story of Johnny Warden of Halifax, Nova Scotia, who, as second mate of the cargo ship SS Montblanc, miraculously survived the explosion of that vessel on December 6, 1917, and the subsequent destruction of the Richmond District of Halifax, and the deaths of more than 2,000 Haligonians by the simple miracle of having been in the bed of a prostitute neighboring Fort Sackville at the time. He was known as Lucky Jack for the rest of his life. He died in 1947 in Queens, New York at the age of 62. Interestingly enough, in the bed of another prostitute. Believe it or forget about it. I'm Robert Wrinkley. Ta-ta for now. You've been listening to a special feature of Pulp Puri Theater, Wrinkly's Believe It or Forget About It, brought to you by Mutual of Ohm, providing spiritual insurance for your past, your present, and your future since 500 BC. This is Gramercy Noun speaking. We return you now to our regularly scheduled program.